although only used as a federal penitentiary for three decades, Alcatraz is still considered the most notorious prison in American history. But did it live up to its billing as being escape-proof? Well, you're about to find out. I'm Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you are watching Lawyer Up. In today's episode, we're going to talk about Alcatraz during the years that it was used as a federal penitentiary. We're going to talk a little bit about the island's history. We're going to talk about its transformation into a federal penitentiary. Then we're going to take a tour of the island. We're going to look at the jailhouse, of course, but we're also going to look at the other major buildings on the island that supported the correction officers who also lived there on the island. Then we're going to walk through a day in the life of an inmate. We're going to look at some of the notable, more colorful inmates that were at Alcatraz. And last but not least, of course, we're going to look at some of the famous escape attempts from the prison. Now, remember to like, comment, subscribe, and share. And recall that Lawyer Up episodes are now available on all podcast formats. So the Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary, often referred to as The Rock, was a maximum security federal prison on Alcatraz Island. It's 1.25 miles off of the coast of San Francisco, California. So originally the site of a military fort and a military prison that was used by the U.S. Army in the 1800s, the main prison building was built back in 1910, between then and 1912. Now, the United States Department of Justice, they acquired the island and it became a civilian prison in August of 1934 after the buildings were modernized and the security was vastly increased. Now, the prison was designed for the worst federal inmates and those that were particularly good uh, at escaping from other prisons. So given the high level of security and the island's location, it's in the cold waters and strong currents of the San Francisco Bay, prison operators build Alcatraz as America's strongest and an escape-proof prison. Now that, of course, was later proven false, but it was hoped that an escape-proof jail would break the crime waves of the 1920s and the 1930s from the likes of Bonnie and Clyde, John Dillinger, and others. Now, ultimately, Alcatraz housed America's most notorious criminals for three decades before its closure in 1963. Former prisoners reported brutal and inhumane conditions which severely tested their sanity. Uh, one writer described Alcatraz as, quote, the great garbage can of San Francisco Bay into which every federal prison dumped its most rotten apples. <laughs> Sounds like a nice place. Maybe not so much, right? But first, let's talk about its evolution from a military prison to a civilian federal penitentiary. Now, interestingly, when the old military prison was upgraded to a new concrete prison, they reused a lot of the existing components in the construction. 
For example, the old cell bars were used to reinforce new poured concrete walls. So what they did is they put the metal bars down into the forms and then they poured concrete in around them. And this seemed like a really good idea at the time. They were reusing materials. They didn't have to haul them away. They didn't have to haul in new rebar for reinforcements. It was a great idea. Actually, it was a bad idea because it caused major structural problems later due to the fact that the metal eroded. From having been exposed to the salty air and the wind over the years, it deteriorated this metal and actually destroyed these new concrete walls from the inside out. Now, when we're talking about security, the Bureau of Prisons, after they acquired the prison, of course, they took measures to make that prison escape-proof, as they said. So guard towers were built outside at four strategic points. They had cells with what they called pick-proof steel locking devices. All the windows were covered with iron grills, and the front door of the place was made with solid steel, virtually impossible for any prisoners to escape. The recreation yard and other parts of the prison had 20-foot high fences, and at the top of that, barbed wire. Now, procedurally, the prisoners were counted 13 times a day. The corridors were regularly patrolled by the guards with passing gates or blocking gates along them. At the end of each meal, the knives, forks, and spoons were laid out on the table and they were carefully counted to ensure that nothing had been uh, taken as a potential weapon. And metal detectors, they were placed at the entrances of the dining hall and of workshops, uh, just in case, right? And the dining hall also had tear gas canisters that were attached to the rafters, which could be dropped at the flip of a switch to, uh, you know, dispel any potential riots or food fights that might have gone on there in the dining hall. And in the earliest years of the prison, prisoners were forbidden from even talking. It was a strict code of silence. Now, this was relaxed in later years, and we'll talk about that as we move through today's discussion. After substantial upgrades, remodeling, increased security measures, Alcatraz was officially open for business in August of 1934. When the first batch of 137 prisoners arrived, at Alcatraz from Leavenworth, Kansas. Most of these prisoners were notorious bank robbers or counterfeiters or murderers. And prisoners continued to arrive into 1935. And after one year, Alcatraz had a prison population of 242 prisoners. In fact, on their first anniversary, the Bureau of Prisons wrote this, and I quote, the establishment of this institution not only provides a secure place for the detention of the more difficult type of criminal, but has also had a good effect upon discipline in our other penitentiaries. No serious disturbance of any kind has been reported during this year. Well, all of that was about to change, but hey, at least they had a good first year, right? But before we get to all of that, let me take you on a tour of the island. So any tour of the island has to start with the jailhouse, of course. It's a three-story jailhouse that sits atop Alcatraz. It includes four main cell blocks, a mess hall, a kitchen, hospital, the warden's office, and some administrative and visitation rooms, a library, and a barber shop. 
In addition to the four major cell blocks, there were five corridors, and they were named after major American streets and landmarks. So let's take a little look at the floor plan. So at the top was Sunrise Alley. That's the first corridor between the outside wall and the A block, and that's at the top of the floor plan. Now, A block, that was never modernized from the original military prison. So no inmates were permanently held there during the years Alcatraz was used as a federal pen. A block was used mainly for storage. A law library was set up there where inmates could do research and type legal documents, and a small barber shop was located at the end of A block where the inmates could get their hair cut once a month. Now, south of that, going down Michigan Avenue, that's the corridor on the other side of A Block between that and B Block. Now, B Block was where most new inmates at Alcatraz were assigned, and they had quarantine status for the first three months in confinement where they were not permitted any visitors. After that, inmates were permitted one visitor per month. Broadway. Now, that's the main corridor that separated B Block from C Block. And that's the central corridor that the inmates would go down. They went down to go to the mess hall. And there's kind of a gathering area outside of the mess hall called uh, Times Square. It was an area where they had a great big wall on the clock. And inmates would assemble there prior to going into the dining hall for their meals. And then there was C Block. And that was for the more veteran inmates of Alcatraz. They were assigned to C Block. The corridor between C Block and D Block was called Park Avenue, and then there was D Block, and D Block was for the bad boys. They called this the treatment block, right? But it was for the worst of the inmates, uh, with varying degrees of punishment, uh, including isolation. Now, prisoners held in D Block, they were given their meals in their cells. They were not permitted to go to work. Uh, they could only shower twice a week, and prisoners usually spend anywhere from three days to three weeks in solitary in D Block. Now, the Birdman of Alcatraz, who was a legendary jackass, he occupied cell 42 in D Block in solitary confinement for six years. That's how ornery that guy was. Now, within D Block, there were five cells that they called the Hole. This was for the worst of the worst of the misbehaviors. Inmates that were in the hole were limited to just one 10-minute shower and one hour of exercise per week. And the cells that were in the hole, they had nothing in them but a sink and a toilet. Yep, that's right, no bed. And the very worst cell in there was called the Oriental or the Strip Cell, where prisoners were confined naked with nothing except a hole in the floor to use as a toilet. One prisoner named Henry Young, he testified about his experiences in the hole during his 1941 trial for killing another inmate there at the facility. This was his quote, You are stripped nude and pushed into the cell. There is no soap. No toothbrush. The smell is like stepping into a sewer. It is nauseating. For bedding, you get two blankets around 5 p.m. in the evening. You have no shoes, no bed, no mattress. Nothing but four damp black walls. Huh. Sounds kind of like law school. Anyway, the corridor beyond D Block was named Sunset Strip. And then there was the basement. Now, the basement was accessible from the corridors near A Block and from D Block, and they went down to a very primitive area below the jail called the Citadel or the Dungeon. Now, it was called the Citadel when the 
army was in control of Alcatraz and it was used as a military prison. And that's what they used for their solitary confinement and punishment. Offenders were often chained in a standing position and kept in total darkness. Now, this dungeon area was only used briefly after being converted into a civilian jail, and it was ultimately abandoned in favor of using the D-block for their solitary punishment and treatment reasons, right? You can actually still access parts of the dungeon on tours, or you can take a virtual tour through YouTube videos. And the place is just, it's just creepy as hell, and it's the stuff of nightmares. Pretty awful place. Now let's move back upstairs, and we're going to talk about the Alcatraz Mess Hall, and that is the dining hall where the prisoners and the staff ate their meals. It was a square room at the west end of the main cell house of Alcatraz, with the kitchen directly behind it. Now that was on the first floor where it was the kitchen. On the second floor, it was the hospital that occupied that area, and then up on the third floor above that was an open area where sometimes they would screen movies for the inmates. Now, the dining hall had a very strict protocol, including a whistle system to indicate which block of men would move in and out of the hall. Now, seats were assigned. There were rules about where you placed your hands, when you could start eating, when you could stop eating. Inmates were surprisingly permitted to eat as much as they want, provided that they left no waste. Waste would be, of course, punished. And interestingly, both the prisoners and the prison officials described the food at Alcatraz as being very good. At the east end of the main cell house was a rectangular area called the Administration Center. It was the entrance to the prison. It included the warden's office, administrative offices, the officer's lounge area, the armory and the vault. Inmate visiting areas and restrooms were at that end. Now, the recreation yard, located at the south end of D Block, was surrounded by, as I mentioned, a high fence. Inmates were permitted out into the yard on Saturdays and Sundays and other holidays. Badly behaving inmates, well, they would have their yard access taken away. And the prisoners were permitted to play games like checkers and chess, but baseball was king. That's right, baseball was king there. Inmates were provided gloves, bats, and balls, and in 1938, they actually had an inmate baseball league with eight different teams from within the prison. Now, going back inside the prison, we will look at these cells. The prison cells typically measured nine feet by five feet by seven feet high with a bed, blanket, desk, sink, and toilet. That was about it. Now, well-behaved inmates actually got to go to work during the day at the Model Industries Building and the New Industries Building once that was built. Uh, they were involved in jobs that would provide for the military, such as sewing and woodwork. Other people performed maintenance chores on the island, including doing laundry for the entire island. Now, let's move away from the jailhouse and let's talk about some of the other buildings on Alcatraz Island. And I would note that, of course, the prisoners, they had to live on the island in the jailhouse, but of interest is so did all of the corrections officers and their families. So while half of the island was devoted to the inmates, of course, the other half and lots of the other buildings was devoted to corrections officers when they were away from the jailhouse. So basically the front of the island or the dock side of the island that was facing San Francisco was lined with buildings that supported the corrections officers. And that is the lower picture 
on your screen. While the back side of the island was for the inmates, it included their workshop areas, and that's the upper pick that you see on your screen. Now, the warden's house was also on the island. It was located at the northeastern end of the main cell block. It was next to the Alcatraz Lighthouse. This was a three-story, 15-room mansion. It was a house of luxury in stark contrast to the jail sitting right next to it. Now today, that house is in ruins because it was burned down during the Native American occupation of Alcatraz in June of 1970, which we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Now building 64, that was the three-story block of residential apartments that was located next to the dock on the southeast side of the island. This was used to house employees of the prison and their families. And the prison usually had a staff of about 150 people. And salaries varied, of course, but a new guard arriving in 1949 was going to be offered $3,000 per year. Now, these guards typically worked 40-hour weeks, five eight-hour days. Uh, the officers generally had to pay 25 cents uh, for their meals, and they were charged $10 a month to rent an apartment in Building 64. Now, larger families had larger quarters, and it was $20 to $40. Most of the officers and their families lived in or around Building 64. Now, there was also the Social Hall, as it was called, or the Officers Club. That was located on the northwestern side of the island near the powerhouse and the water tower. And this club had a bar, had a library, you know, a dancing area, a large dining area, had pool, ping pong tables, and a two-lane bowling alley. And it was essentially the center of social life on the island for the employees. It's where they celebrated their birthdays and had holiday parties and those types of things. There was also the powerhouse, which is located on the end of the island that supplied power to the island. There was the water tower. It was a 250,000-gallon water tower that was located on the northwestern side of the island. And in fact, Alcatraz had no independent water supply of its own. It had to import and bring in water from the mainland that had to be brought in by tug and barge and it had to be pumped up into that water tower to support water on the island. The model or the old industries building was a four-story building at the northwest corner of Alcatraz. This building was originally used as a laundry building until the new industries building was built. And then after that, it held workshops for the inmates. Um, this was the building that shifted within about two feet of going off the cliff during a landslide that was caused by a severe storm. The new industries building was constructed in 1939, and the ground floor of this two-story building contained a clothing factory, a furniture plant, and a brush factory where prisoners at the federal penitentiary worked. And they made items such as gloves and furniture and mats and army uniforms. And then the laundry was moved to the second floor of the new industries building. So those are the buildings on the island. Now next, let's talk about the wardens. And there were four during the 30 years. And we're not gonna mention them by name because it's not relevant for this particular video, but it's important to note that each successive warden was a little more lenient. The rock, as it's called, Alcatraz, evolved from a place where they had a strict code of silence. There was no, no speaking, no sounds whatsoever. And it evolved under the fourth warden into a jailhouse full of instruments that were blaring where inmates could check out instruments and actually play them and practice them in their cells at night. Now I point this out because this loud noise from these instruments 
played an important role in Alcatraz's most famous escape that we'll talk about here in a minute. So let's talk about prison life and a day in the life of an inmate. Now, the cells we talked about, they had a bed, a desk, a sink, a toilet, and few furnishings except for maybe a blanket. And prisoners, they had no privacy even when they were going to the toilet. The cells also had no hot water. There was an air vent measuring six by nine inches covered by a metal grill that lay at the back of the cells, which led to a utility corridor, which is going to be of supreme importance here in a minute. So prisoners would be awoken at 6.30 a.m., sent to breakfast at 7 a.m. At 7.30, they started working, at least those that were privileged enough to do so. Smoking was prohibited, but only in the workplace and only if there weren't any type of hazardous conditions nearby. So lunch was served at 11.30 a.m., followed by a 30-minute rest before those that worked returned to work until 4. Dinner was served at 4.30, and then the prisoners would retire to their cells to be locked in for the night at 5. Well, except for a privileged few who in the later years got to play in the jailhouse band. They would often eat either down in the mess hall or in the auditorium area. So what did the rest of them do at night? Well, most of them read. Alcatraz Library was located uh, there at the prison where prisoners could check out books and they would read in their cells at night. Now, after the code of silence was abolished, inmates could also check out and practice musical instruments, anywhere from the guitar to the accordion. And Al Capone, you may have heard of him. He famously picked the banjo in that prison band that I had just mentioned. It was lights out at 9.30 for everybody. So let's talk about some of the notable inmates that were at Alcatraz during its time as a federal prison. One was Arthur Barker, Doc Barker. He was the son of Ma Barker and was a member of the Barker Carpus Gang. Now, Barker was shot and killed by guards in 1939 during a failed escape attempt. Al Capone, Scarface, who I just mentioned, he served four and a half years of his sentence there on the rock before his failing health led to his transfer to a medical prison. Now, Capone was involved in a lot of fights while he was there, uh, including the most famous one where an inmate held a blade to his throat at the prison barbershop after Capone had butted in line. George Kelly Barnes, better known as Machine Gun Kelly, was at Alcatraz for a few years, and he was famous for boasting about murders and robberies that he had never actually committed. This earned him the name amongst his other uh, cohorts there at the prison as Pop Gun Kelly while he stayed at Alcatraz. And then, of course, there was Robert Franklin Stroud, the Birdman of Alcatraz. He was originally sent to Leavenworth at a young age after he was involved in a murder during a drunken brawl. Now, while at Leavenworth, he again murdered somebody, but it was a corrections officer this time, so he was transferred to Alcatraz. Now, he was called the Birdman because he was a self-taught ornithologist, and he wrote several books on birds. His Digest of Diseases of Birds is still considered a classic in ornithology. Now, he was confined, as I told you, to D-Block in solitary confinement for most of the duration of his stay at Alcatraz. He was ultimately transferred to the Medical Center for Federal Prisons in Springfield, Missouri, due to seriously deteriorating health, where he died 
back in 1963. All right, all right, enough stalling, right? We're going to talk about the escape attempts from Alcatraz. That's what everybody wants to know about. That's what everybody wants to talk about. So during its 29 years of operation, the penitentiary officially claims that no prisoner ever successfully escaped. There were a total of 36 prisoners who made 14 escape attempts Two men tried twice. Now, 23 were caught, six were shot and killed during their escape, two drowned, and five are listed as missing and presumed drowned. So there's five people who escaped the actual jailhouse that are unaccounted for as I sit here today. Now, the first escape attempt was made in April of 1936. This was by Joseph Bowers. He was caught scaling a chain link fence at the edge of the island. Now, when he refused to come down, a corrections officer shot him, and he fell to his death. The second escape was in December of 1937, and this was by a Theodore Cole and a Ralph Rowe. Now, during their work assignment, they cut the bars of a window, and they climbed into the bay. Now, it was stormy that day, and the sea was rough. So they are thought dead by prison authorities who believe they drowned in the bay and their bodies were swept out to sea. But the point being, the bodies were never recovered, right? So these are two of the five escapees that we don't know for sure or definitively what happened to them. So let's move to the bloodiest escape attempt. And this was the most violent escape attempt that occurred back between May 2nd and May 4th of 1946, when six prisoners led to what they called the Battle of Alcatraz. So the six essentially took control of the cell house by overpowering corrections officials. They then moved into the weapons room and they armed themselves They then demanded the keys to the door. A quick-thinking guard by the name of William Miller turned over all but one key, the key to the outer door, which he pocketed. Now, the prisoners' plan was to escape by boat from the dock, but when they were unable to open this final outside door, they decided to just turn around and then try to shoot it out. Unfortunately, in that battle, they took Miller and a second guard hostage, and they ultimately shot and killed them. So Miller's quick thinking is actually what got him killed. Now, after the hostages were killed, three of the prisoners said, wait a minute, we're out, and they surrendered. The other three decided to continue to shoot it out until the U.S. Marines came in, intervened, and killed Uh, those three prisoners that were still fighting to escape. As for the three that surrendered, they were tried for killing the corrections officers. All were found guilty. Two were sentenced to death in the gas chamber, and one escaped with a life sentence. Now, let's talk about the most popular escape, and this was the 1962 Escape from Alcatraz. This has been the subject of books. It has been the subject of a movie starring Clint Eastwood, numerous TV shows. In fact, I have a separate video specifically dedicated to just this escape attempt because it's so fascinating. Here's what happened. Back in 1962, a Frank Morris, John Anglin, Clarence Anglin, and an Alan West devised one of the most ingenious plans 
ever for escaping a prison. So behind their cells in B Block was a three-foot wide utility corridor. So what the prisoners did, they chiseled away at the concrete around their cell's air vent that led to this corridor. And they used tools such as a metal spoon and an electric drill that they improvised from a stolen vacuum cleaner motor, right? So the noise was disguised by accordions that played during music hour and their progress on the wall, chipping away at it, was concealed by some false walls that they had painted and they stuck over the edges, which the guards in these dark recesses of their cells, they, they couldn't see that they were actually breaking through the wall. So over several weeks, they would sneak out of their cells through these vents, working at night to plan their escape route, to fabricate the items they would need for the escape. And in their beds, they would roll up towels and they would stick them under the blankets to make it look like the body. And then they made paper mache dummy heads that were painted and even attached real human hair that they had stolen from the barbershop to these paper mache heads that they placed on their pillows to make them look like they were sleeping. So over several weeks, they made an inflatable raft from stolen raincoats, which they sewed together and then melted plastic over the seams. And they hid this raft on top of their cell block. So June 11th of 1962, that was go day. That's the day they're escaping. However, only three of the men actually escaped as Alan West was unable to get out of his cell in time and he missed the boat's departure. Now, interestingly, once the escape was discovered, West cooperated with the FBI, and so he is primarily the reason that we know as much as we do about this particular escape plan. So since that time, hundreds of leads and theories have been pursued by the FBI, local law enforcement, and officials, but no conclusive evidence has ever surfaced regarding the definitive success or failure of this particular attempt. Now, the FBI's investigation was officially closed on December of 1979. The official report of the escape concluded that the prisoners drowned in the cold waters of the bay while trying to reach the mainland, it being unlikely that they made it the 1.25 miles to shore due to strong ocean currents and the cold seawater temperatures. Now, what is odd is that the U.S. Marshals, they didn't close their file. In fact, it remains open today, and Morris and the Anglin brothers are still on its most wanted list. And of significance is that evidence was uncovered in the early 2010s, which strongly suggests that these men survived. After some investigative reporting discovered police reports from nearby Angel Island, where on the date of the escaped, a raft was recovered with footprints leading away from it and a 1955 blue Chevrolet had been stolen. Was it the escapees? No one knows for sure, but it makes some sense that instead of fighting the currents to try to get to San Francisco, they would follow the currents 
to Angel Island. And today there is very good evidence that both of the Anglin brothers made it out alive. It is less clear about whether Morris survived the escape attempt, but you can learn all about the specific facts of this escape attempt in my separate video. There's a lot more information about this in a separate video dedicated exclusively to this 1962 escape attempt. And last but not least, we have to talk about the only documented successful swim from a prisoner of Alcatraz. This happened on December 16th of 1962 when inmate John Paul Scott successfully swam from Alcatraz to the mainland at San Francisco. Now, the current turned a 1.25-mile journey into a 2.7-nautical-mile swim to Fort Point, which is basically at the southern end of the Golden Gate Bridge, but he made it. Now, he was found there by teenagers. He was suffering from hypothermia and exhaustion, and after recovering at the hospital, he was sent back to Alcatraz. However, it is the only proven case of an Alcatraz inmate reaching the shore by swimming. So while his escape attempt was not successful, he proved it could be done. And this really shook the FBI's line of reasoning that the prior escapees must have all drowned. Today, of course, we know that this swim is very possible because it's routinely done by a multitude of athletes who swim that same Alcatraz to Fort Point route as part of annual triathlon events in San Francisco. But both of those escape attempts in 1962 were really kind of the straw that broke the camel's back when it came to the closing of Alcatraz as a prison. Now, they weren't the only reasons, but they were a major part. So the three major reasons why the prison closed was, number one, it was by far the most expensive prison in the United States to operate. A 1959 report indicated that the facility was over three times more expensive to run than the average American prison. It was $10 per prisoner per day versus $3 in most of the other prisons. And remember, they had to haul in all their supplies. They had to haul in all the food. They even had to haul in water to be dispersed through the water tower. Number two, of course, was the building's structural deterioration from exposure to the salt spray. And this was happening both internally and externally. Major repairs had begun in 1958, but by 1961, the engineers considered the prison a lost cause. They said it would be cheaper to build a brand new prison somewhere else than to try to repair the existing one there on Alcatraz. And then finally, the multiple people who escaped in 1962, as we just discovered, all that combined led to the closure of Alcatraz as a federal prison on March 21st of 1963. The final Bureau of Prisons report said of Alcatraz, quote, the institution served an important purpose in taking the strain off of older and greatly overcrowded institutions. It enabled us to move to a smaller, closely guarded institution for the escape artists, big-time racketeers, and connivers. Then the island sat dormant for about six years until the Native American occupation of Alcatraz. Well, what the heck was that? Well, I'm about to tell you. Between November of 1969 and June of 1971, there was a 19-month-long protest by Native Americans and their supporters who physically occupied 
Alcatraz Island. Now, this protest was led by Richard Oakes and a group that called themselves the Indians of all tribes. And they claimed that under the Treaty of Fort Laramie between the United States and the Lakota tribe, all retired, abandoned, or out-of-use federal land would be returned to the Native American tribe who once occupied it. As Alcatraz Penitentiary had been closed, the group felt that the island qualified for reclamation by the Native Americans. Unfortunately, during this occupation, fires were set that destroyed most of the structures on Alcatraz. Now, there is much dispute as to who set these fires, whether it was the occupying group or whether antagonists snuck onto the island and set the fires. Regardless, ultimately, the U.S. government cut off all supplies. They cut off electricity, phone, food, and water to the island. And on June 11th of 1971, a large contingency of federal officers removed the final occupants from the island. Now, today, as most of you know, the island is operated as a national park service. And even though most of these structures were reduced to ruins by these fires, the jailhouse still stands and the island is visited by over 1.5 million visitors per year. That is the history of Alcatraz, the rock, and its use as a federal penitentiary up until the present date. I hope you have enjoyed the episode. If you have, smash that like button for me. If you have a question or a comment, put it in the comment section below. If you haven't subscribed to the channel, what are you waiting for? Hit that subscribe button. And as always, you guys know it, that I love it when you share me on social media. I appreciate you watching. Again, my name is Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you've been watching Lawyer Up. Send lawyers, guns, and money.